I think the one thing about camp is that camp is the most creative playground for kids. You can be whoever you want to be at a camp. It's the best place to dream. I think that's the connection that we have together. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, co-founder of the toy and entertainment company, Speedmaster, Ronen Harari. Ronen Harari has fun doing business. That's because he's in the toy business. He's the co-founder of Speedmaster, an almost 30-year-old toy company that he took from founding to IPO. With his best friend Anton Rabi, Ronen started the company out of his parents' house, creating Earth Buddies, the Canadian version of Grassheads, which he'll describe to us in just a moment. They went on to sell devil sticks and flip tricks and many more toys. Then they began creating shows with hits like Bakugan and eventually Paw Patrol, which many of you parent listeners are probably very familiar with. But his journey wasn't all fun and games. And that's what inspires me the most about Ronan. It's his willingness to persist, even when the path forward isn't so clear. Born in South Africa to Israeli parents, Ronan moved to Canada when he was just five. Ronan told me that his dad owned a typical immigrant business, a high-end Persian rug shop. And while he knew from his time helping his dad that he didn't want to sell carpets, he did realize at a young age that he wanted to be in business. And it was a chance encounter at summer camp that would really set his business journey in motion. Anton and I met at Camp in Abrith. We were like 13 years old and we became best friends. It's a wonderful camp because it's a Jewish camp focused on middle-class kids and it also doesn't turn people away. And I can't remember the exact moment that I met him, but I remember... We were always hanging out together. I don't know. We just, there was something that just clicked between us. Something. <laughs> All the stuff that teenagers do, right? <laughs> Get into a little trouble here and there and play some tennis. And the interesting part about Anton and I is like, we were both entrepreneurial. He had a, like a small business at, in high school. And so we shared that common dream together. We said we'd never go into business together. <laughs> Why? I don't know. We were both competitive and we were friends and we were like, we were, I think we were always taught you don't do business with your friends. Right. I think reality hit and we needed to make money in university. And so we joined up forces <laughs> and we've been partners now for 28 years. Did you have complementary skills or are you really similar? I don't think you would ever find two people that are more different than me and Anton. Oh. We're completely opposite. In what ways? He's like super organized. I'm not so organized. I'm highly detailed. He's not so highly detailed. He's a big extrovert. I'm like introvert, extrovert. We're just very different people. So you started a business in college, right? We started a small business called Campus Faces, which was taking pictures of university students. And we'd uh, create a collage. And then around the collage, we'd actually sell advertising and then give the posters out to the kids for free. Our goal was for the kids to hang them up in their uh, dorms. And then they'd be able to look at the advertising around the perimeter. The first year was to pay money for college. Second year was to pay money for college. Third year was to pay money for college. And then we, Anton and I had this relationship together and we said, well, let's just do something after university. Before that, you decided not to do business together, but I guess your college experience was it, really it positive. Worked. It worked. We were doing these posters at six different schools by the time we finished. And oh, nice. uh, we had a good like yin and yang together. We both worked hard. So 
it was just natural. Yeah. So how did you guys find what do you really want to do in business? Originally, we were going to continue the poster business. That's when my mother gave me a heads up about the rush deshe, these grass heads. Imagine a softball with googly eyes, uh, a pinched nose, lipstick, kind of like a happy face. You put them in water and they grow grass for hair. And actually, it grows right through the nylon. It's kind of like a pet rock meets Chia Pet. She was reading the Yedioth Akronot. Yedioth Akronot is the number one newspaper in Israel. She translated the article for me. And there was a two-page spread about all these different people that were making them here in Israel and how they were a big craze and, and they were selling super well. And then my late grandmother brought a few earth, uh, we call them earth buddies, but uh, the Rosh Dash at Grassheads yeah. for gifts for me and my sisters. And then I turned to Anton. I was like, what do you think? No one's making them here in Canada. Why don't we just manufacture them ourselves? And he thought I was crazy. Uh, it took me about two weeks to get him on board. And then he said, okay, yalla, let's go. I actually remember in Israel, the Rosh Deshe, and yeah. I, I never owned one myself, but uh, I remember it was a big trend. Was it patented? Like, could you just take it and start manufacturing it? In the article, it actually had six different people that were manufacturing the product. And in the article, it did not say that any one of the six people actually owned the product or was the originator of the product. We were young guys, so we took the liberty. Looking back, if there was a specific person that originated it, we would have gone to that person and said, hey, can we get the rights? But it was interesting because there wasn't any originator, we felt that it was free and clear and we just did it ourselves. To the point where I remember my late grandmother, she's like, why don't you just buy a container from one of these people in Israel and just bring them to Canada? And I was like, no, no, no. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. We've got to control the supply chain. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys decide to do the manufacturing. And how did you have the confidence? Like you didn't have any experience manufacturing in, experience? In manufacturing. No. <laughs> you know, we had a little bit. We, we made the posters. I don't know. We just, we just kind of jumped in. We went to Kmart and bought a bunch of raw materials. And the raw materials are quite simple. They're ladies' pantyhose. Ladies' pantyhose. They're ladies' pantyhose. We used to buy them from Summit Hosiery. It was a nice Jewish guy on Spadina Avenue in Toronto. They're sawdust. The eyes and stuff came from China. And uh, yeah, it was a very dusty product to produce. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> and at that point, it was the two of you, you and Anton, and a bunch of people that are helping you with manufacturing? Well, sort of myself, Anton, my brother-in-law, he was an incredible engineer. We said to him, you know, would you come in? We'll give you some profit sharing. Can you help us, like, figure out the assembly line for this? And he did. And we went to my sister and said to her, you know, we'll give you some profit sharing. Can you do the packaging for us? And she did. And we probably had, like, 10 workers in the factory. And then once we got bunch of orders we knew that we needed more hands so Anton said you know I went to business school with Ben Verratti you've met him once before he's a great guy maybe he can come in he can actually run the factory for us Ben's not a manufacturing guy but he came in he's super smart and uh, we did a deal within like 30 minutes the deal you added him as a as an equity uh, partner, equity partner. In, in the wow. partner and then off he went and he started running the factory for us The truth is we were just learning as we went and pulling on the resources closest to us. And I think like looking back now, it's quite amazing the people that are around you that are super talented too. You just need to ask and people will want to help and be a part of something. Yeah. So we just kind of pulled on people close to us and made a bunch of mistakes. Like the first people we hired were from the homeless shelter. Huh. We were like, if you're homeless, you're not working. So that'd be a great place to find people to work. <laughs> the problem was that they weren't so reliable, so we had to like move on. But there is an amazing story that comes off that that two of the people that we hired ended up staying with us. One of the guys ended up running our factory. Oh wow! Bob Wakelam 
we wouldn't have gotten through the production without him. He was like a savant. And we hired his friend, Grenville, who ran all our shipping for us. And they both got out of the homeless shelter and got an apartment together and got back onto their feet. Our goal was to make 5,000 pieces by Mother's Day. And we had three weeks to Mother's Day. You know, if you give yourself a catalyst to shoot for, then you'll figure out how to make it happen. (laughs) We thought Mother's Day was the end all and be all. Did you know where you're going to sell it? Nope. Did you have a business plan? No, we've never done a business plan (laughs) in 28 years. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. There was no business. The business plan was doing. We learned through the doing. So we ended up selling on the streets the first day and we made 5,000 pieces. I think we sold maybe like 800 pieces. And then we started going to florist shops and then a Canadian distributor. And they actually called us up two weeks later and they gave us an order for 26,000 pieces. 26,000. 26. They ended up selling it to Walmart Canada. And so we just kind of like started building it up. You were the first to manufacture it in Canada? We we're the first to do it in Canada, correct. So you expanded to the US? Yeah, we made a really big sale to Kmart in the US in our third month of business. It's a crazy story. Anton was backpacking in Europe <laughs> a couple of <laughs> years before, and he met this guy who lived in Detroit, who came from this really uh, well-off family. And Anton literally called him and said, do you have any connections to Kmart? And he said, sure, no problem. We do. We can get you an appointment. I don't know why, but I ended up driving down four hours there. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. And I do my whole 45-minute spiel, everything. The buyer's like silent. Okay, it doesn't say a word. And then he looks at me and says, I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm not the buyer for the product. And I'm like, there's no way he's not the buyer for the product. So I give him like another 15 minutes and he looks at me and is like, I'm sorry, I'm not the buyer for the product. And I'm like, we'll give you the product on consignment. Okay. <laughs> you sell it, you pay us afterwards. He's like, I don't think you understand. So why was he listening for all the time? I don't know. He was a really nice man. So I said to him, you know, I drove all the way from Toronto. Can you do me a favor? Can you find out who the buyer is? So he went back to his office and he came back and he gave me a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, it said, Adrian Zacks. So I shook his hand. I said, thank you very much. And I took my box of Earth Buddies and I started walking around Kmart Corporation looking for those buyers. In their offices. In their offices. I guess it was before security became a thing. Yeah, I didn't ask any questions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They were talking about like 1994. That's the Israeli mentality. Yes, I'm 30% Israeli. So (laughs) so (laughs) I start walking around and to our good fortune, she's sitting at her desk and I give her a 30 second pitch. And she says to me, I'll see you at 3.30 today. And I went downstairs. I never left the lobby. And then the craziest thing happened. When I came back at 3.30, she had seven other samples from other manufacturers. Of the same product? Of the same product. Okay. Sitting on her shelf. Any differentiation between your product and their product? Our grass seed was great. Our sawdust was great. Ours grew better. You know, I loved our packaging. But essentially the same product. When I saw it, I made a calculation in my mind. I'm like, I better reduce the price to guarantee the sale. I was going to come in at like 265 and I reduced it by a dollar to 165. And that's a lot of discount. It's a lot of discount. Were you sure that you're going to still be profitable? You know, it was maybe like a 40% gross margin. Yeah. It was enough and it was such a big retailer. But I think it's the quickest pricing I've ever done in my career. <laughs> But it was a transformational what happened afterwards. So she she gave us an order of 48,000 pieces. 48,000? On the spot. Which is, I assume, the biggest one that you had until that the point. The biggest one at that point. I think she was like, this is a young company, they're serious, and I like giving young people a shot. Huh. And then she said, if you ship it and it does well, I'll give you an order for half a million pieces for this Christmas. Huh. It was the most transformational thing to really give massive momentum to our business. It was the fuel to get off the ground, that moment. We ended up selling over a million pieces in the first nine months. Wow. We actually launched a follow-up product to the Earth Buddy, and it didn't do that well. 
And we went to Toy Fair in 95 and going to Toy Fair and seeing all the different products that are sold there was fun. And so we said, oh, toys sounds really exciting. And Ben Varadi, his roommate, Jen Irwin, was part of the Irwin Toy Family, which was the biggest toy company in Canada at the time. And they were very kind. And they said to us, there's all these people that invent toys for a living. Why don't you connect with all these inventors? And so that's what Ben did. He actually transitioned from running the factories, like, I've had enough of manufacturing, I'm out. And he transitioned to meeting with all these toy inventors. When we met with the toy inventors, we quickly understood that we had at least a steady stream of ideas of which to choose from versus the horticulture. It was like, I don't even know where to get the next idea from. So what was the next hit? It took us a few years to like land on a serious hit. So we, And what were you doing in those couple of years? We were selling like novelty items in the toy industry, nothing substantial. Did you have confidence that this is going to be like a real business? You know, I, our confidence was one product at a time. Let's stay active. Let's take some risks and let's see where it goes. Until something becomes big. Big, small, whatever. Yeah. It was more about just getting the products to market. Okay. And what will happen will happen from there. Of course, we had big brothers in the industry like Mattel and Hasbro that we aspired to emulate, but it wasn't, it really wasn't more fancy than one product at a time. Like you had all these big companies and you were very small. Yep. I'm assuming they know all the inventors themselves and they meet with them. And so why would anyone give you guys a chance? It's a great question. I think part of it is naivety, <laughs> being a little naive. It kind of worked into our advantage with the one big product that we licensed called uh, Air Hogs. It was an airplane that you pumped it up and it would fly around for 45 seconds. And all the toy companies had turned it down. So they're like, oh, it's great. You're going to sell it, but you're going to get back like 40% of the product. The complicated part was keeping the quality control high so that the return rate was low. The Air Hogs are technically not even a toy. We spent two years doing all the engineering and development. We put all our money into it. You see this product and uh, you do some, you know, bunch of research and uh, focus groups and stuff like that? No, it's not that complicated. It's more like, did you have a lot of fun with it? <laughs> <laughs> the toy business is half art and intuition, and the other half is actually knowing the history, what's come before you and what hasn't done well. So before Air Hogs, there was rubber band planes or you had gas power planes. You usually got one or two flights out of it. It would crash, it would break, it could take your finger off. And then here comes Air Hogs, It's just like super light plane. And anytime it hit your finger, it would stop spinning automatically. So you got this incredible plane that flew around for 45 seconds, safe, easy, durable, 30 bucks versus a $60 gas power plane that you get to fly once. I think we ended up selling like millions of pieces of this air hog. So getting it up at that scale was very new for us. What was it like for you, the partners? How did you guys make decisions? Did you have a lot of uh, fights over, should we go into this product or not? We had a lot of fights. I wouldn't even call them fights. We actually had like what I call healthy discussions. So our culture is, it's kind of like the Knesset, but without so much screaming. Sounds to me more of <laughs> the actually, Canadian maybe, parliament. Than maybe the, the Canadian, maybe the Canadian part. You guys don't necessarily go with the best ideas in the, in the Knesset. <laughs> um, but because we were very young, there was a lot of nervous energy in the room, like to like make a mistake. Did you have any doubts like at that point, like we could lose everything or is this going to become huge success? Every year we had failures. Every year. Keeps you modest. It keeps you very modest. It keeps you grounded and keeps you learning. But we were able to bat 60%. And we looked at business like a river, one product at a time, rather than like, okay, how big is this business going to be? Like, that wasn't our focus.
So we started going to Japan in the year 2000. What drove us to go to Japan was it's the most creative place, I think, in the world. And they have this massive toy industry, and they've always made these really neat products. <laughs> so we said, if we're open to ideas from wherever they come from, let's go to Japan and let's see what's going on over there. And in 2006, a product line called Bakugan co-developed the product together with a Japanese company. We did a full 52-episode animated TV show, which we ran for four seasons. So that was a huge catalyst that took us into the entertainment industry. In 2011 and 12, our company lost money for eight quarters in a row. The reason for the downturn was that Bakugan was, it was $100 million worth of revenue, and the revenue dropped really quickly. And the products that we had behind Bakugan, they were not successful. And we didn't have a company that had a very diverse portfolio. We were much more hit-driven, and we didn't have this like stable, reoccurring base of revenue. And we had a little bit of hubris. Not a little bit, probably a lot. We were like, everything's going to work. Everything we touch is going to turn to gold. And that's not what happened. We lost half our revenues. We let go of 35% of the people in the business. We did four restructurings. That was just for us. Like It wasn't what we built. We were profitable for 16 years. You know what it was? It was like, this would be a shame for the story to end on this note. If you talk about seminal moments, those two years, from a business perspective, how to run a business properly, that's where we went to school. We became highly judicious in terms of what products we actually were going to develop, and we just got really focused, and then a little bit of luck. It's always helpful. But there was moments like, you know, throw in the towel, sell the business. And I will tell you, like, our relationship between myself and my two other partners, like, it was completely frayed. But I think, you know, deep down inside, we were like, we don't want the story to end like this. All of that prepared you for the biggest success, Paw Patrol? Yes. Because of Bakugan, we were looking for more shows. And so we made the decision. We said, we're going to open up Spin Master Entertainment. We're going to produce television shows. And so we did Bakugan. And then we did this show called Redikai, which was a complete flop. And then we did another show called Tenkai Nights, which was a complete flop. And then we did another show called Little Charmers, which was like, it wasn't a commercial success. It was a nice show. And then I guess our fifth show was Paw Patrol. What gave you the confidence to try again and again till something worked? At some point, you know, it's, it's not really a confidence thing. It's just more of a, it would be cool to try. Paw Patrol, like, to do something, like, that Disney can do. Like, we were just students, so to, like, strive and reach that, it's like climbing to Mount Everest. And so it's less about the confidence. It's more about just, like, I don't know, something very deep inside. Like, you're studying, you're looking at all these people around you, and you want to be a part of it and bring something to the world like that. And so it was just, I don't know, it's very deep. It's very deep. What was the process like? we identified that there was no shows about transformation for preschoolers. Hmm. There's a play pattern in transforming toys. So there's Transformers, there's Bakugan. Bakugan is also about transformation. Transformation is just so magical. You're going from one form factor to another form factor. It's magical to look at. It's magical to apply your imagination to. It's magical to actually play with in real life in an actual toy. But we were like, for preschoolers, for two to five years old, like there's never been anything like that. So we're like, oh, let's see if we can create a show. So we co-developed it working with one of the best storytellers because Keith Chapman, he did Bob the Builder. He was an incredible person. He's super lucky. I love working with lucky people. Super lucky? He's a lucky guy. What does that mean? He's just had a lot of luck in his life. He's just, his chef is really good. Like his energy is really good. He's super creative, but he's super lucky. So I believe like when you spot a lucky person, just like get right up close and personal with the person, <laughs> right? So you get a little bit of their chef, you know, you get their energy, you get their luck. It's just an intuitive. There's no science. He's just got the magic. We were very, very lucky because 
that magic cascaded out. It was like this mashup between toy and storytelling and writing, and then we just put it into the universe. It's the biggest. It's the biggest, most famous. Put it to you this way. For many, many years, people ask me, what do you do? You're in the toy business. Great. What do you make? A lot of them wouldn't know what we made. But then we finally got the Paw Patrol. Like, it's got so much love and brand awareness. It's such a wonderful show with wonderful characters. And it's nice when someone knows your product. And I heard one of the characters is actually based after you. It's a little folklore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm Rocky in the show. Where did that come from? Rocky's the mutt. I identify because of my South African, Israeli, Canadian roots and mix of different things. In 2015, you took the company public. What was the reason for that? We were thinking very far into the future. What is the best way for this company to outlive the founders, to continue this great Canadian company and this great Canadian story? And we thought that a public company structure was the best way to do it. Pre-bell ringing, but 10 minutes before, I got really emotional. I got really emotional. And then being able to like ring the bell, like that was cathartic. Yeah, I think I cried. How was it to run a publicly traded company? It's great. Yeah. I haven't woken up in a cold sweat once. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, it's, it's like turning your underwear inside out. Okay. Yeah, because you, well, you've worn it that way for so many years, right? So you're putting on like new underwear or wearing it in a different way. So it feels a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say like, it's a wonderful thing because it clearly lays out the parameters of which you run a disciplined, structured company that if you're private, you don't necessarily have. The reporting every quarter, the growth underneath, the gross margins, everything's looked at. It's the ultimate form of business school. Mm. It's the ultimate form. And after more than 25 years, in 2021, you stepped down. I think I fought like a fish. <laughs> I don't think I really wanted to. I like to say step up. I didn't step down, I stepped up. But I think there was a realization between myself and Anton and Ben that the co-CEO model, it was a healthy model up until it wasn't. And it wasn't what was going to take the company into the future. And so we did what was right, not necessarily for ourselves, maybe as individuals, but business as a whole. In 2017, you and Anton came full circle and donated to the camp where you met. What was the reason for that? The camp actually got into a little bit of disrepair. The tennis courts were, could hardly play. The balls were not bouncing that well in the tennis courts. So, so it was our pleasure. You know, so we fixed up the tennis courts and the hockey rink outside and the basketball court. We owe so much to that camp. I think the one thing about camp is that camp is the most creative playground for kids. You can be whoever you want to be at a camp. It's the best place to dream. I think that's the connection that we have together. We dreamed at camp. And not only do we dream at camp, but we live the dream. Like, it's amazing. It's just like time slows down. It's so still. And we still live it today. And the thing I'd say about starting your own business, it's your canvas to paint. And it's truly an art form. I think people look at business as in it's all about the top line and bottom line. And yes, it is. But after that, you have the opportunity to create your own playground. And I think that's what we were able to do. We created our own camp. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that I ask each of our guests. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? People think that I'm like super laid back, but I'm, you know, I got like fire in my belly. I got some intensity. 
but I guess I am a laid back. I am an easygoing person, but I think they think that I'm like even more easygoing than I am. <laughs> what are you currently obsessed with? You know, I'm reading a lot. I don't know if I can call it an obsession, but it's getting close to being an addiction. <laughs> I'm reading Wim Hof's book on breathing techniques and cold showers. I'm so excited because I've incorporated it into my routine now. I'm like two weeks into the cold showers and it's the most amazing thing because they're not that cold anymore. Well, you're in Tel Aviv, so it's, uh, but I start every day with a freezing cold shower. Wow, good for you. You don't start warm, you start cold? Most of the time I actually start by working out, like yeah. running yeah. or Peloton or yeah. whatever. And then I take really cold shower and meditate for half an hour. Interesting. I'm going to try that. That's hardcore. What piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? I would say slow down, try to be as present as possible with every opportunity, with every encounter. Take it in. You don't have to rush it all. Whenever I was on a business trip, I was always rushed to get back, get back to the office. You know what? You could have taken an extra day. You could have taken two days. You know, you could tack on a little holiday to that trip, tack on a little holiday to that trip. Nothing's going to fall apart. You got to just be present because the journey goes fast. It was great having you on our show. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Eli Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's See you next time.